0: And we are official live. Okay. What's up, guys? John Centes here at Cast Crite Low, Cutter Nation podcast number 42. Um, before we get going, don't forget to go check out the website. We got remote training going on. We're getting ready to launch some um, stuff on that, trying to get some people help with what we're doing, try to spread the word with Cutter Nation and all the other fun stuff we're doing. Um, don't forget to subscribe to his podcast, or his uh, podcast, his YouTube, YouTube channel, TV. our YouTube channel, and then also. We also have an online store with some awesome fun things like Long Toss Legend and some other things on there with some great shirts, Pitching Gangster, uh, Strike Out Everyone. There's not enough pitching shirts out there, I don't think. I think everybody's talking about donkey hats and everything from there. So, <laughs> But without further ado, our guest, Kyle Wagner. Kyle, welcome to the podcast. We really appreciate you having you on.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, is that a Georgia hat? It is Georgia hat. I just put it on to make a statement. Good. Um, I want to know more
2: about that because I know your kid and your nephew are going there. Um, Okay, so I just want to start off things with how I know Kyle, um, or I know of Kyle, um, and then we'll see where it goes from there. So I don't know that Kyle knows this stuff, so I think this is going to have two purposes. So, Kyle, I don't know even the first time I reached out to you, but I believe I knew of you from Twitter – um, but I was, so I graduated, uh, from Hamlin university, which is a D3 school in St. Paul, Minnesota in 2011. And by the end of 2012, I had decided to quit trying to do a real job and go full time doing baseball, um, at a place called Neverzark and baseball. And so I don't, I, I don't know if you have, if, because I've talked a little bit with Rob Benjamin, um, so I feel like he had said this, but I worked for Tom Nevers who might've been playing at the same time as you did. He was in the Astros organization, but that's neither here nor there. So it was Tom Nevers and Gene Larkin were the guys that I worked for. Um, and I was just looking for more content, um, and more, really more ideas than what they were giving me from a hitting standpoint. Cause I'm a pitcher and you were one of the first people who is willing to educate, uh on on what you were teaching for hitting so in all honesty i actually have green light hitting uh, on my computer and some i i had told one of my clients about you guys and they had bought it and they shared that with me so i have both of your books now so sorry my poor ass couldn't uh couldn't invest (laughs) in you back in back then but So from an actual baseball swing standpoint, um, you were, you were huge in, in how I understood the swing. And, and now that, you know, I actually don't know the full details of your timeline, but it seems to me that you sold, uh, go wags to Swanee. And, and now I've seen you more in a, I don't know if I don't know what you want to call yourself, but I I really appreciate the the messages that you're sending from an education standpoint, um, from a leadership standpoint, that I have been really drawn to that. And I know that I can't make any assumptions about anybody else. It just seems that because there's been less baseball, maybe less people are watching than when you were um, with Go Wags and and your kids were hitting dingers. So that's how I know about you. And and I told John, I mean, it feels like you're kind of like an uncle to me, even though we've never even talked because I've really appreciated the messages that you've sent the whole time. And it's crazy that I'm able to know of people and learn from people that I've never even met. And I, I, I work with John because of social media. A lot of the people that I'm having a lot of conversations with just in life right now are because of the internet and because of social media. So this is just really a unique thing that we're even here having a conversation. So, for whatever it's worth. That's why I know who Kyle is. Um, Kyle, I would like to know a little bit more about um, your story. Kyle just wrote a book that he just sent me in the mail, How the Rivercats Won, okay? So, what? I don't know where you want to start, but I would like to know a lot more about how you are where you are right now.
1: Yeah, well, I, I'd love the opportunity to, to take this um, and, and just share some thoughts. I think that uh, most people that get a forum to speak get that forum because they've had enough success to justify their voice and and yet when they get that forum many times they're at the peak of their of their sport they're the professional they're the the coach with great success and it it led me to believe that the more success you have and the further you get along in this game the further away you get from the beginner so in the in the book I talk about what I call the imagination game versus the precision game and I think recognizing that that disparity between the two different types of games creates a conversation that we need to explore and one of the things I'm always fascinated by is why it seems the best coaches aren't always the most successful players and I think when you dig deep into that that mindset I think really successful players have success and then that success teaches them that their way is the right way so naturally they're led to communicate a message to their players that this is the thing that we need to do this is how we need to explore and yet the beginner is it has a completely different mindset and i think failure when when a when a player has failure i think he tends to embrace that mindset better. I think he sort of dives into that beginner's mindset about what it takes to be successful. So I like to tell people I had enough success to be credible, credible, but enough failure to be relevant. And, and I think that's critical for coaches is that we need to constantly be aware of our success might in some ways, give us the forum to speak. But until we can really relate to the people that we're working with, there will always be a disconnect. So I think when you describe me as that uncle, I think in some respects, uh, I I, I try to relate to to the young player, the dreamer, the one that has so much of life's goals out ahead of him. And yet the coach that knows how dangerous that future is and about how we need to sharpen our tools and how we need to. Add more tools to our tool belt. So I guess in many respects, I try to keep both the beginner in mind and then the, the expert in mind who knows how difficult the road ahead is.
0: That's amazing. That really is. amazing. It makes me think about what um, kind of how we do things, because we get a lot of questions with helping kids and, and anywhere from seven to twenty eight, twenty nine right now. And it, it trips me out sometimes, too, because you constantly have to change your language whether you're working with them at the exact same time or like different sessions, you know? And so you're, you're talking to one guy and you're talking about a, a very advanced concept like you're talking about. And then you step back down to a seven or an eight year old and you're like, okay, man, let's just throw hard. Let's let's uh, yes. try have to feel, you yeah, know, have fun. Let's just try to throw the ball. We have a little box that we try to get them to help with their aiming so they can just throw it in the box. And we're just, how many times can you throw it in the box? And when you say that to an older guy, that they almost feel like it's condescending sometimes. You and know, they, they want to it. overcomplicate it, you know, and well,
1: just throw it in the box, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think that's, that's the disconnect. You know, the game of baseball, and I, I talk about this in the ninth inning right away, the game of baseball can be defined a myriad of different ways. And the seven-year-old is the dreamer. He's the one with so much, so many of his opportunities out ahead. And he knows that you know that there's a there's a thousand different paths that lead to the eventual goal and yet the 28 year old is knee deep in in the precision game and he knows if he can't be exact with his o2 slider on the edge he gets hit so the the 28 year old needs to be precise the 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 eight year old needs to keep dreaming and and that's where the great coaches craft a message to their to their respective audience and 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 that 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 becomes the coach's greatest skill set that flexible lens that he can adapt his message to who who's listening to him. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I
2: have thought of this. Um, I thought I'd share this. When I started I started Olympic lifting, or I, I, I was coached on Olympic lifting like three four years ago, and I remember I knew how to like I knew how to make the bar go up that looked like a power clean, but I didn't know how I was doing it. I didn't, I had never been taught to that. And that that experience was so relevant or so powerful because I felt like I had no clue, and so I'm in baseball, like feeling like I know exactly what's going on. And that that thought process was really helpful for me as a young coach to go. This is the feeling that kids have all the time, and you're trying to tell them about hip and shoulder separation, like, dude, you're really missing this. And and so, okay, um, I I I'm curious. Can you can you get us up to speed on Like for the people that don't know you, like I know of you around the 2014 time. So can you kind of walk us into 2014 for the people that may not know you at all?
1: Uh the year, right? What's that? That was the year, right? The year. Yeah. Uh 2014. Uh I was I was knee deep in travel baseball. Uh my Son was I, I guess he was 12 so that was the, the Cooperstown era that was um, the Gowags river cats were, were starting to make a name for themselves in the Northeast. Um, my nephew and his buddies were, were growing through Gowags. Uh, they eventually found success on the Little League stage with, uh, with, with the Redland team that, that won their United States championship. So uh, 2014, my audience was generally young kids. Uh, I would say anywhere between the ages of uh, nine through 15, 16, uh, I would dabble with those, those college guys, those professional guys that would come back and and want my knowledge. Uh, But truth be told, uh, I was out of the college game and the professional game for quite some time. So, you know, my message was always tempered with the idea that I was I was removed from what I call the precision game for a little bit. So that was that was me in 2014. It was uh, it was catering to the dreamers and it was creating a mindset of uh, of exploring and uh, willing to test boundaries and be the best that you can be and and um, so that and and I knew that the the thing the, the fact of the matter was I knew that you know, we could have fun and we could, we could have a blast in 2014, but eventually those kids become older and they need, they need skills and they need tools. and That's where we are today. We're, we are entering what I call the precision game and we need skills and we need tools. So, With your kid. so far so good. With your kid? Yeah. Luke's a, Luke's a junior in high school. My nephew Cole, he's a sophomore in high school and uh, they've been surrounded by a lot of really good players. So, it's just not them in isolation. There's a whole bunch of them that, that have grown up together.
2: Yeah, so you said, I, I read, I was able to read the preface. <laughs> so you were with them for five years, this team?
1: The Rivercats, yeah. We, I, I, I grabbed them, uh, let's see, when uh, our first baseball year was 10. So we played as 10s, 11s, 12s, 13s, and 14s. And then once they went to high school, uh, then we sort of disbanded, and they went their own way.
2: I feel like you're you're underselling this a little bit, so I'm gonna pull a little bit harder. I don't know anything about how you got there. Like, I want to know the story a little bit because I, I know I can read it, but yeah. I want to know. Like, I don't even know. It seemed like you just said that there were two different teams. Like, I just know this from afar. I felt like somebody won. The, the state side thing. Like I, I really came across you like after this, right? So were you on the field? Yeah, so, I don't know anything. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, go ahead.
1: Okay. Um, so I I'm, I'm I live in central Pennsylvania. we our, My hometown is New Cumberland, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and I had a vision that I wanted to bring better, better baseball to central Pennsylvania. To do that, I needed to create an environment where good players – play with good players as often as possible and they challenge each other and they grow through a nurturing environment, but we have to create failure as appropriate. Uh, the best way to do that is to surround yourself with good players. So I needed to attract good players. It just so happened that we had enough good players in central Pennsylvania. Um, we, we started going down that road where, uh, we, we, our, our practices were intense Uh, And yet I think it would be safe to say that the parents that brought their kids to me knew that they were always loved in the present, but they were always challenged for the future. Uh, We had a very, very consistent theme with our players. Uh, I like to refer to that as the long game. I think the biggest disconnect with teams is that when you don't create a common vision, uh, coaching is often interpreted as criticism. So when 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 you create a a group of boys that have a common goal, then you can train them for the future. You can be demanding of them. You can challenge them because they know that uh, the, the coaching isn't merely criticism. It's it's feedback for some tools that I need later. And and the 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 harder that we push these boys, the better that they got. And, you know, some boys we had to we had to. Dismiss along the way that might sound callous, but the the truth of it was that every year is a more challenging year, and we we grabbed players from outside our area to compete. Uh, the, the 10 U River Cats weren't the same team as the 14 U River Cats. We went and we grabbed some really good players from Jersey, we grabbed some players from Philadelphia, uh, and sometimes the the message, the parting message was painful, but when you grow a team collectively for the long game with that bigger purpose of becoming that college player or that professional player, sometimes you need to do that. And, and we did that. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud of, of what we accomplished with all our achievements, but looking backwards, I'm, I'm, I'm more thrilled with, with what they've become playing for different coaches. And and that's really what how the river cats won is about it's that you know we parted ways as 14 year olds and now as 17 18 19 year olds they're having great success and they're playing for other coaches and i get to sit back and applaud and and know that our time was very well spent what
2: um so can you can you speak a little bit about how, how you were how are you even able to recognize that there was a void you know in the market for you to say that you needed to do this because i know that you you played a little bit can you tell us a little bit about your experience leading up to this and your ability to recognize this like you're you're a teacher um but what were you doing before 2014 like how did you get to yeah. that? I, tell me more about go wags too because i don't know enough about the facility either can we, can we stay on that
0: real quick? Because you oh, said something that I really please. loved that you said right there was, and, I, and I'm trying to catch the quote on it because it's beautiful. It was something about love. You, you said love something and then challenge in the present. And I really, really, that really resonated with me. And I wanted to make sure that. that well, is, is that, a, is that a, a line of yours that you, you throw out sometimes? Oh, I'm sure. I don't know what I throw out from time oh, to time. Oh, yeah. It was great. It was quality. Yeah. It really was. And, and I well, really resonated with what you were saying with that. I,
1: I think one of the lines I always share is pain is the greatest teacher. And in my experience, you know, I, I, my experience was uh, a modest success in the ACC. I played at Wake Forest. Uh, very, very, I mean, I was a professional in name only. I played a, a short season with the California angels as a, as a catcher. And I had an honest conversation. They told me my future probably wasn't bright as a player. And, And if I were being completely candid, I would tell you I've I spent many days and nights crying on the on the edge of a hotel bed. It was hard. And um, I had a twin brother that was was much more successful than me. And maybe maybe some of that pain grew from that, that here was a guy with the same DNA that was just better than me. And and I wanted it. I wanted it desperately. and, And yet I couldn't have it. I wasn't good enough. So when I got into coaching, I I think in the back of my mind, I've always had that knowledge that the end game, the precision game is so demanding and it requires such skill. And I would be lying to my players if I didn't develop them for the long game. And yet uh, through experience, I knew that those tears were often shed because I didn't like who I was. I, I, you know, I, I knew I wasn't good enough to be a, a big leader because I didn't hit enough. But I was a really good catcher. And and um, I, I in hindsight, I know I know I needed the skills. I know I needed the tools. But I had so few coaches that that would put their arm around me and say, hey, you're really good at what you do. Uh not good enough. what you want to be but you're really good at what you do and and i guess maybe therein was the the uh the perception that was formed with what i call the love growth cycle is that you know the 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 value of a coach is we need to love them in the present we need to challenge them for the future and and coaches coaches get they get so wrapped up in growing their kids that sometimes they lose sight of the fact that like sometimes mom and dad just want you to say hey you're great. You're great. You're everything you need to be right now. Now you're not good enough for tomorrow, but today you're great. And, um, so I, I guess, I guess that's, that's the pain. That's that, that was me feeling the pain and knowing that my skills weren't good enough, but also knowing that, um, my identity was wrapped up in being a baseball player and that wasn't healthy. And we need to make sure that, uh, we love our kids for who they are today, and we challenge them for what they want to be tomorrow.
2: My goodness, that's, that's, do you, mind, do you yeah. mind moving your finger, Kyle? It's just on the screen. Yeah, your screen's covered.
0: Your oh, fingers covered. your yeah. fingers coming up. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah. All it's all good. Okay. Um, i am hold on. Uh, yeah. So that was awesome. Like, love them the present, challenge them the future. And you know, I resonated too. I had uh, when I'm from Florida, um, a little bit of East Coast guy too, from a small town called Destin and i had three teams running stuff when i was trying to start figure out how i wanted to attack this game of baseball and make a change like you were saying um probably a similar situation to me i, I uh, ended up playing um six years uh, down in mexico um played winter ball played summer ball played all over the place and um i broke my elbow my senior year in college and it took me three years with two different surgeries to come all the way back and you know dr andrews and all the doctors told me i'd never throw again yada yada so i used my experience with that to help with kids or anything. But that was one of the biggest challenges I had was with having three teams is like what you were saying. You could see the potential of the team, but really what bothered me with teams was the dedication of every player just wasn't there to the level of what the other players who were very successful were doing. You know, the kids that were doing so much more on their own and then showing up to practice and show up to games, it just made so much more sense. And then the players that didn't do that it was almost like the kids didn't even have the wherewithal to ask the questions and the parents would just complain to me about why their kid wasn't doing so well or why he wasn't, you know, playing as much or things like that. And that just really bothered me because it, it seemed like people were more, you know, interested in the trophies of the situations and trying to win the game now instead of understanding that your kid can't throw the ball 60 feet and you know, can't even hit a cutoff guy, has no idea where the ball is going when he throws it, or when he swings, he's just getting blown away, and he's just not there. And then people just don't accept that information. They think that it's a um, – they think it's like such a negative connotation, and really what it sounds like what you're doing and I'm doing is, is like, this is the truth of the situation. This is what is going to happen if you continue down this path, unless you make a change or just decide that this isn't for you.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I, and I think it it all stems when you form your team, the, that team needs to be formed with a common goal. And many of my players, the river cats, every single one of them at one point, now at one point it, it may have changed, but every single one of them eventually wanted to be a college big league player. So you can coach those guys and you can tell mom and dad, look, so long as this, if this is his vision, this is what he needs to hear. But the minute that they lose that vision, the minute that they don't want to become a college player or a big league player, now you're just a jerk with a message. You know, Not now you're just, now you're just being critical of me, you know, because all they want to do is just be happy today. And you're trying to tell them, yeah, but I thought you wanted to be a college player, a big leaguer. Like this is just me helping you. And uh-huh. so everything, everything falls apart once you don't have that common vision and, And those things need to be addressed up front and often so, so often coaches make a mistake where they think if nothing's being said, everything is fine. And then you, you run into conflicts. You're like, wait a second. I thought, I thought you wanted me to coach your kid. And, and, and uh, one of my quotes is attendance doesn't imply consent. And, (laughs) And what I mean by that is oftentimes people are in our presence and and they're there but we 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 all have different motivations and you the three of us might want to coach a kid and and the kid just wants to beat balls have fun and run around he doesn't necessarily want to get better for tomorrow so it's such a it's such a dynamic that 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 three-pronged attack of coach kid and and parent i mean the 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 dialogue needs to be transparent as often as possible and the biggest breakdown I believe is that uh, the, the future goals become, become vague. And then that's where conflict lives.
2: That's good stuff. How, how, so how how do they, how do they become vague? Is it short-term long-term? What do you mean?
1: Well, I just think, you know, when you sign up for a team, we coaches imply that you're signing up with the intention of getting better and improving for the long game. And sometimes the kid just signs up because he wants to have fun and be with his buddies and 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 therein lies a problem. If 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 Jack's just playing second base because his two buddies are pitching and playing left, I mean that, that's that's where his end game might happen. It just might be on that team and he doesn't he doesn't see himself as a baseball player as an 18, 19, 20 year old. And yet you're working under the assumption that, of course, he should. That's why you're playing baseball, to grow. So that's what I mean by those vague goals.
2: That makes a lot of sense. So it seems to me that, like, maybe this is just my interpretation, but it seems like green light hitting was a – please correct me on this. So like clarify this. It, It seemed to be, like, much more about the precision
1: game. Well, now at the time, at the time, um, you know, what I, what I had a son that was, oh, I guess 2000, I guess he was 11 when the book went to print, but it, it was two years of digging and diving into it. And again, pain is the greatest teacher. I knew I wasn't successful as a player. And there was so much stuff even back then, just like there is now everyone arguing and no one really coming to a consensus as what should be taught. And so I stopped believing in the baseball people. And I started looking into the skill acquisition people and the kinesiology people. And I wanted to know uh, the psychologists with, with reaction times and choice reaction and recognition and and simple reaction. Like I wanted to know what was that play and, and the, the, the more I dug, the more I realized that, you know, uh, there there is more to this act of of hitting a baseball than just the physical component. So yeah, the precision game became, hey, here if we want to be great, here's what we have to do mechanically, technically, but it also implied, you know, psychologically. I mean, I I wanted my kids running through those walls wanting to practice and the the green light hitting model is a very implicit model it's it's one where it it throws the bulk of the of the work on the athlete where you know you, you try to do things implicitly you, you create authentic goals you the feedback can be internalized and and uh man i, I wanted our guys loving their opportunity in the box not sort of cringing with whether or not they're pleasing the adult telling them how to act. And, and I think, you know, when you talk about the imagination game and the precision game, the, the, the imagination game hinges on that love and, and just being excited for the game of baseball and getting in the box and wanting to compete. But, but yet the precision game, we know, we know, we know that guys that throw 97 with tight sliders imagination isn't going to get it done like they need a skill set they need a skill set to be successful so it's that balance and and yeah when you so and in green light hitting in that book i stopped short of even suggesting what it takes to be successful at the highest of levels because i had really removed myself from that arena and i didn't want to i didn't want to guess I, i wasn't that wasn't my audience well, and it was so
2: systemic, and that's maybe where I was going coming from. Is like, for for those of you that don't don't know, please te- please enlighten them a little bit, just kind of on the outline of the book, because I I'm not an expert in it whatsoever. But I just I appreciated that there were levels and that you could you could go and get them like a video game.
1: Yeah, I I, I well, what I always struggled with was the athlete would ask for help from different adults in his life, dad, coach, second coach, you know, team coach. And it always seems like everyone was hit or miss guessing as to what they needed. So my thought was, well, shouldn't there be a, a leveling of sorts where you can look at a player and say, okay, so eventually he needs all these skills, but can we pinpoint the one skill that he needs today? Like, We can't give him 18 different things to improve on. So is there a foundation of sorts that should trump all others? So when I was creating this model, that's what I tried to tie into is what, what foundations precede the other, the other things. And, and I I mean, I, I liked what I came up with. I mean, I, I, I filtered it through different people I trusted and I respected and it, it had great success. I mean, we were ridiculed at times and, and, uh, you know, I, I've told other people that I, I knew that eventually they had to change. I mean, if, if we're talking green light hitting and I say, well, if you're a level seven hitter, of course, I know that that's not going to play at the big leagues, but I mean, just because the algebra student doesn't know calculus, it doesn't mean he's not a good algebra student, right? He's, we We need to acquire skills on an appropriate timeline. otherwise we're gonna we're gonna stress kids out. i guess I guess that's the beauty of green light hitting.
2: That's really interesting. So it, I thought of things that i I need to I'm filtering for a second here. So I know that so what is the foundation then? Because it seems to me that intent precedes content is is about as foundational as it gets. Am I right on that?
1: Yeah, and, and I'll, I'll share this story with you. When my son was seven, um, he got in the batter's box and he was facing a, a, a electric arm as far as nine-year-olds go, right? I, I mean, he, he, was, he was in a league and, and this kid could really chuck it. And I'll never forget, I was, it was a scrimmage and I was umpiring behind the mound. And this nine-year-old threw the ball in the middle of my son's chest and and my son just hammered that thing into the bleachers poolside and i remember thinking to myself you know there is no amount of precision that would protect him from that pitch the the the, the only reason he was successful was because he was trained in an aggression before discipline mentality it was all about attack and i think our greatest strength for our young kids was where others stepped in the batter's box with a cautious, fearful, please the adult mentality. Our kids bordered on reckless at times, but, but they, they were not afraid and they were aggressive. And because of that, they could protect themselves. And, you know, when you go to a little league game or you go to one of those youth games, one of the, one of the biggest fear factors is how hard does that pitcher throw? when you see a young kid warming up on the sideline and he's throwing rockets to the, to the catcher, like you don't really care about if you're staying inside the ball or you don't care about, you know, how quick you are. Like you just care that you can protect yourself. So I think at our most common level, our kids felt safe in the batter's box.
2: That Holy crap. Um, yeah. Yeah that is crazy. So I just, so coming from Minnesota, um, I really had no idea what daddy ball was. (laughs) And I really did not understand. Like I didn't, I came to San Diego uh, looking for a new opportunity just in my life. And, and I realized that I just moved to the Mecca of baseball training and that the people here um, really think that Gosh, they're just not even on the level that you just described. Like they're they're not aware of those fears and anxieties that their kid has, right? They're we're, they're teaching like their eight and nine year olds that that they need to do like planks to make sure that their core stays right. And it's like, dude, and I've heard you say things like this, and and I've I've really, I think we're doing a pretty good job on this as far as like giving younger kids the ability to come to our facility and have fun. And really, you know, it's appropriate. Um, so I don't know where I'm going besides, like, I, I, you were the first person that made me realize, like, my 7- my through 12-year-olds, like, they just want to play. You know, they just want to be able to have fun and put them in an environment where they can protect themselves. So I don't know, Kyle. That's just – it's really freaking
1: profound. <laughs> but well, you're saying, when we set up Go Wags, one of the things that we did is we broke our athletes into three groups. And I think this is critical for, for development. Uh, we, we, our youngest kids, we called sampling and, and the reason why that's important is because, you know, the the whole premise of quitting has gotten such a bad stigma to it. It, it. But when you're six, seven or eight, you're just sampling sports. So if you, if you give those young kids too much failure in their mind, all that means is this sport isn't for me and they'll go and do something else. So our samplers, our little guys, we never wanted them to, to fail. We we wanted to create excitement and love. And we wanted them to run to their cars and tell mom and dad, did you see how good I was today? Because then samplers become our middle group is what we call our specialized group. And our where the samplers, we like tried to trick them into learning because they weren't interested in learning. They just wanted to play. The the middle group we called specialized. And those kids, they were starting to get good at the sport and we knew that, okay, now we had to give them some tools and in order to have some tools, you got to fail a little bit. So now that that middle group, uh, it was often a juggle between, all right, are they going to go baseball? Are they going to go basketball? Will they go football? We need to be sensitive to their success and we need to give them enough failure to grow. And then the last group was the invested group and that invested group, that's, that's where failure lives. That's, that's where we need to challenge you. Uh, we need you to fail in our cage. We need to know why you're failing so we can get better. But to what you were talking about, you know, if you take those little guys and you treat them like big guys and you say, Hey, be willing to fail. Well, in their mind, they're saying, uh, so I'm willing to quit. How about that? And, and, and what, what you've done is you've just kicked a really potential, potentially really good player out of the sport of baseball so sampling specialized and invested groups was a framework for how we developed our ki- our kids
2: where is do you have that somewhere because I want to make sure you know what I have yourself I'm I do not want to ever forget that because I am seeing people that are in the middle group and appropriately in the middle group and their parents or coaches are treating them like they're in the other one like the, the little ones is pretty obvious like yeah. when you're telling your eight-year-old like Hey, like your hands are too high in the, in the middle of an about. like you're missing the point here. But like, I think that middle group is because those are, especially where we are, the 13, 14, 15 year olds talking about goals. They are legitimately being told that they need to consider college right now, you know, and they're not in the invested group yet. They're still not, they don't care about what they eat. They don't care about the amount of sleep they have. They, they have no perspective um, and I think that's appropriate and, and they're just not being treated like that. So
1: anyway, well one of the one of the if I'm just gonna throw this out just because it, it popped up, but one of the dangers I see today, uh, you know that that middle group and that middle group can be defined however someone wants to define it. Everyone's middle is a little bit different. But you know when you look at the end game of professional baseball and you see, where these high-velocity guys are on the mound. You know, th- this middle group's obsession with posting high numbers damages, damages their long-term growth because if, 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 I, if I develop velocity above all my other pitches, then when I compete as a 14-, 15-, 16-, 17-year-old and my velocity is the sharpest tool in my tool belt, that's what I'm going to use. I'm going to throw harder to get guys out. And then when they get to the, the, to the invested group or the precision game or whatever, they haven't developed their changeup. They haven't developed their slider. They haven't, they haven't learned how to compete with multiple pitches because their one tool was developed at the expense of the other tools. And that's what I'm really sensitive to. And, and, and that's just, as I mentioned, the sampling specialized and invested. That's one example where if you train someone out of their appropriate area, it can do damage a little bit later down the road.
2: I, I think about that's, that's amazing. I We're think real, about yes. a conversation that I read between you and Swanee a while ago, and I don't know. I it, again, this is live. I know this is recorded, so like, if you need to be careful here, I don't. I don't know your guys's relationship, but I know that that there's been a back and forth with that, and and with us having a radar gun on everything that we do, you know, um, I feel like. I, I want to know more about what you mean there. Like, what is, if, if I'm because the thing, this is our order of priority. And I feel very strongly about this. We, we, we tell our kids that they need to ask three questions. What did it feel? And this is John. So if he, if he wants to take credit for this, this is, this is fine, but I love this. What does it feel like? How fast did it go? Where did it go? And then I've been adding this fourth one. What do, what do other people think? Because too many times people are prioritizing. What is, what do other people think over what are you feeling? Where did it go? Uh, how fast was it? And where did it go? So I think the misinterpretation when we're, when we're being seen on radar guns is that we're prioritizing how fast did it go over everything else. And if it doesn't feel good, like it doesn't matter. And, and, and maybe we don't focus on off-speed pitches enough. I don't know. You can be critical of, of that side of things. I don't know how much you watch us, but help, help me understand more about like, what's appropriate. Like where should Velo come in? Like, Tell me
1: more. please. Yeah. Well, um, like when, when I do these things with, with educational perspectives, I always tell them one of our biggest dangers is is what I say when we teach in silos and a silo, all that means is that we only consider our perspective and not other perspectives. And as long as you train velocity holistically and not in this silo where, um, 93.1 is better than 92.6 like as long as you recognize that if if my velocity grows that's a good thing but please don't please don't dismiss all the other things at play and i fear that sometimes when velocity gets trained in these silos when when we don't have umpires Uh, recognizing that we got to throw three strikes before four balls. When, when uh, I mean, I know Rapsido, I think gives you movement and things along those lines. So that, that, that I think is beneficial, but you know, if, if, if I go to 93.1 from 92.6, but my ball flattens out holistically, did I become a better pitcher? If, if, if I go from 92 to 95, but my slider flattens out, did I become a better pitcher? Uh, So it it used to be that the only way that pitchers were evaluated was how many guys they got out and, you know, know, and and now we just got to be careful with how we evaluate pitchers. We just got to make sure that, okay, if your VLO went from 91 to 93, we're going to clap. We're going to applaud. That's all great, but we're not going to dismiss the fact that you have yet proven that you can take that on a mound and get guys out. And when you do, well, then, we'll, then we'll then we'll applaud, and that's something to be that's something to be grateful for. But it's these silos that get dangerous. I, I will
0: I will go even further. When I was playing down in Mexico, my entire perception of um, really my whole thing up until I broke my elbow, everything changed because I was on the. Uh, I'm 33, so I, I was the uh, the Braves of the 90s. You know, Maddox, Glavin, Smoltz. Smoltz is still all over it right now, talking about you can't develop velocity; it's just natural and everything that we've been doing is just that that is just outrageous. Like I would love to have a conversation with a guy who said you can't develop velo, but he's had three shoulder surgeries and had to change his arm yeah. three times, you know, like, but that being said, you know, being down in Mexico and seeing this different level of baseball, the, the way more fun side of it, less precision, less, you know, location. Like that's one of the things when I got out here in California, the first thing I noticed that everybody threw a change up, everybody threw a two seam. And everybody was like okay don't throw too hard because you're trying to hit a spot because that's how you get a guy out and then you just look and see that this kid goes out there and he's throwing 50 when his potential to throw is 60 or 65 and he's getting crushed and his dad's like well you just got to locate better you know greg maddox says when i get down an account i just try to locate better but really if you know maddox and you see the pitches that he's doing he didn't try to locate better he tried to make the ball move more Like, he tried to make that two-seam run four feet and make the guy swing over it, which is a completely different concept of what they feel. And so that's what I was doing through high school, didn't get recruited, walked on to junior college, ended up dropping me down to throw sidearm because they said I didn't throw hard enough. Now, I was in the last year of draft and follow in the Panhandle Conference over there. So I'm sitting with 19- to 20-year-old men. We're all the same age, and I was the slowest-throwing guy at 86, 87, and it was 93 to 100. and then all 10 guys got drafted that were like that like out of that or signed their contract and i just didn't understand because that's not the philosophy that i grew up on that nobody in the area that i came from talked about things like that you know nobody was was talking about strikeouts or really breaking it down to an elementary level on understanding like really just getting people out and so after you know i broke my arm and i was like you know what i'm going to do it differently and i decided to like okay you, you see a Kerry Wood, you see a Josh Beckett, you see all these guys and they play for a really long time and they strike people out. They don't throw strikes. They're not trying to get ground balls. They don't, they try to strike people out the whole game. And you can see it. And I, I like right now, like I will argue with anybody to the day that I die that Max Scherzer might be one of the best pitchers ever because he's been doing it for the longest and he just keeps adding tools. And then you hear the commentators and the John Smoltz in the world are like, well, why is he learning another pitch? And it's like, well, he's trying to make himself even further on your point and try to become even more deep on his levels of what he is doing. So he can become even more complicated and nobody can solve the Rubik's Cube of his brain, which I don't think anybody ever will until he actually retires and, go, and then gives everybody his game plan on what he's been doing. So, like, you know, being down in Mexico and seeing I saw five guys throw 100. But in the, the first day that I saw a guy throw 100 on my team. I saw that same guy give up back-to-back home runs at 101 miles an hour, and they pulled it. And so that's where I was like, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. I thought it was all velo. Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's where I was like, okay. But then I realized this former big leaguer against this former big leaguer, especially the Venezuelans and the Dominicans and the Mexican guys that are down there, like, they just don't care. If If a fastball is coming, there is no radar gun. They just know it's fast, and they eventually just hit the ball as far as they can. And that's what was really fun down there because i saw a 19 year old kid throwing 100 face a 41 year old legend in mexico and he hit two bombs off the guy and it wasn't like little bombs it was like pulled bat flip and i'm just going <laughs> to waddle down to first base just to let everybody know that i just don't care who you are i'm not going to go to america and play in the big leagues because i'm completely content with playing here in mexico and i'm just going to hit absolute tanks everywhere you know and, and like it really opened my eyes that i was like I tell him all the time, I'm like, I'm going to take him down to Tijuana to a game because, like, we just don't get it. You know, like.
1: Well, you you, you obviously. See, you have those experiences. So, you know that after a guy signs a professional contract, he's eventually got to get guys out. Yeah. So, your your perspective is a holistic perspective. It's these things have to grow together because eventually. Velocity will get you thumped. If it's just velo, it'll get you thumped. But if your sole goal is to become a professional, and that's all you care about—just crossing that finish line—well, just throw hard. That's fine. That you can do that, right? You Uh know. So it's like—I mean, I tell my son all the time. You know, the goal—the goal isn't to sign a professional contract. That's what I did, okay? But but I was I was out of the I was out of the game. I don't know six, seven, eight months later because I didn't have enough tools in my tool belt. I, the the goal is to become a professional, and that requires a holistic approach. That that it velocity cannot develop in isolation because eventually you're gonna end up giving up tanks, like you said, throwing 101.
0: Yeah, it's great, and that's that's funny because I tell Cass like too we talk about one of my things that I really like to do when we get kids to the point where they can throw their pitchers pitches and really have fun with it is like, I just try to give them these next level big league sequences. And like we, we go live on Fridays with, um, with our guys. And we had a high school sophomore strike out a college junior and the junior packed his stuff and left and we were laughing at it. And he was like, dude what the heck like you got high school kids throwing fastball curveball, Quit curveball telling change-ups. them what
2: to throw
0: yeah like like seriously he's like dude what the heck and i'm like yeah you throw change ups after curveballs because they look for a fastball and the kids and especially when you throw it back foot and it's righty righty and they don't expect it and he took a g hack went to a knee walked out of the turtle grabbed his stuff and left and i remember being <laughs> like what are you doing where are you going he's like i'm done for the day i'm like you're done for the day we got like four more guys to throw and he's like nope that's it i like, you know if this has happened like this, I need to go back to the drawing board. But it makes a lot of sense, like you're saying, because a lot of the kids that we were there, like the college kids that were hitting, it made so much sense because they're putting so much pressure on themselves to have this exit velo, to have the perfect swing and this and that. And that's the thing where he and I talk about too, where if we were to go in the backyard and play wiffle ball and just no coaches, no parents, nobody, maybe a scoreboard, probably a scoreboard with you and me, 100% a scoreboard with us. But, Like, wouldn't we just be trying to strike guys out like as best as we could and like not give up a bomb? And then when you do give up the bomb, then you backflip
2: and stuff from there. And that's where it's fun. You know, and I just don't I don't see people playing the game that way. I always tell people that nobody's playing the same game as John is. Nobody's nobody's there. I,
1: I think I think in many respects, it's the same. It's the same reason why at the big league level, coaches will tell kids to play multiple sports because they know that we need to develop our competitive skills as well as just our tools. We need to we need to learn how to compete. We need to know that it isn't just about throwing harder. It's about it's about throwing the 2-0 change. It's 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 how do I get this guy out? Not not so much how do I outperform him. And when when our obsession is with execution all the time, sometimes we we forget that you know, competitors just find ways to win, and and that's what you're talking about. It's it's just find a way, and that's okay. Just find a way.
0: Yeah, it's it's pretty funny. Like uh, as as playing through my career, working through indie ball, and then working all the way down there. Um, the whole phrase, the branding cutter nation, it wasn't even my idea. It was actually my after my first start in the Pecos League, and my catcher actually gave it to me because I came before the game and it like. I decided to like try things differently as i go and i told him all my sequences what i wanted to try to do what pitches feel the best and like he just didn't really know what to do with that information and so we we throw the first cutter against uh, a batter and he just like loved it and i said i'll follow you unless i feel differently and we'll just go from there so i think that game we must have thrown like 65 cutters you know i think we struck out 11 i threw nine like first start since college since I broke my elbow and all this stuff. So I'm all jacked up, you know, and we go to uh, post game to this little wing spot because they were sponsoring the game and uh, I'm sitting there talking to them and I'm talking to a couple other guys and they're like, dude, where have you been? Like, where are you playing? So I'm like telling them a story about how I broke my arm and I haven't been able to throw and I got obsessed with all the stuff and I developed a cutter and I was just trying to figure it out, you know, and then this guy from the other team walks over and he goes, have, we have a bet going and we want to know if you threw like a hundred cutters or a hundred sliders today, because nobody knows, nobody has a clue of what's going on. And before I could say something, the, my catcher, he's a big Alabama guy, you being uh, uh, East coast guy. And he's like, he's all about saving nation. And so he, <laughs> he, just goes, he goes, it's cutter nation, baby. You know what we're doing? And I'm like, I'm stealing that. That's me. But the big story with it is, is like that branding has gotten around with people and people that I don't even know. Like, and I play down in Tijuana in the amateur league just to, to compete, like you're saying, and have fun. And people will yell out Cutter Nation. And when they do that, I know that they're thinking about a cutter, so I just don't throw it. And it turns into a smoke screen, and everybody's thinking, like you can see them just cheating away, cheating away, cheating away. And we're just pounding fastballs and change-ups inside and watching guys. And then eventually, you know, maybe second or third time through, then we start throwing it right there. And that's the fun part of the game that I love. And it's just funny to me over the years, like, i i'll just go somewhere and a couple guys will know me or this and that and then you'll hear them say like hey watch out for the cutter like something <laughs> like that and i'm like this is like this is stupid like i don't even know who these people are you haven't even seen it in the box and you're already scared of a pitch that is like mythical it's like taking on its own identity you
2: know? that's beautiful i'll say one thing and i and i say this really humbly because i recognize it could be taken the wrong way like the reason why I think we have the luxury of even having these conversations is because we know that we're pretty darn close on how to develop kids, how to throw. Right. And so what I saw when I came here was like when I was coaching D three baller, I coached in the Northwoods last summer and there's this fear on the field of telling kids things that would allow them to develop, but that would maybe make them worse today. And, and so I see in the coaching world, if you have a team, there's this fear of development in season. And, and then on our side, it's like the over, um, emphasis on velo, like in that silo, like you said, and I just feel like a lot of people aren't able to blend the both of them. And I feel like it's the same thing. Like the end goal is the same exact thing. So today I really just believe that the wins today don't matter. Um, So at what point
1: do they, or do they matter today from your perspective? Well, I think they, they matter in, in, in that they're validating that they they certainly matter for young kids. I mean, wins tell young kids that you're on the right track and, and stay the course, but with respect to what you're talking about, I think you're talking about development and you're exactly right. And you know, the, the one conversation that needs to take place often with, with parents is, Hey, when when we play, uh, I, I might make decisions that that compromise the win, but they're gonna they're gonna help us for the long game. So um, you know, everyone wants to win. Uh and and, and look, if if you're playing for a, a legitimate prize, I mean, like my son and nephew are playing for the state championship tomorrow. Yeah. And and that's a that's a prize worth winning. Like you should win that, okay. But yeah. if if you're if you're playing if you're playing on a Sunday tournament and and it's you know five o'clock and and it's just it's one good team against another good team and and to win you got to overextend a pitcher or or you, you feel like maybe you should give the hit and run instead of let a guy free swing like that I that I question I mean you know I yes wins are validating but you know, holistically, if, if we're looking at player growth and player development, I, I with the Rivercats, I had enough good players that I, I often didn't have to didn't have to, you know, revert to winning at all costs. We we were good enough. But that's a message that needs to take place with parents. And look, the, here, here's our goal. Our goal is to develop kids for the long game. Uh, we don't often play in tournaments that the prize is really worth winning. Uh, When we come across one that is, I'll let you know, and by by, for sure we'll play to win. And you know, one of the one of the the debates that I know coaches struggle with with these tournaments is how many guys to hit. You know that that's a that's a real decision that that coaches struggle with when they when they go to these things. So yeah, it's all. I mean, and and there's a time to win, and and there's a time to develop. You just need to be aware of of which one you're entering.
2: And it seems like if you preempt everything and you tell people what's about to come, that it sure makes things a lot easier.
1: Well, parents, uh, I was always sensitive. I mean, there's a cost associated with playing now. And and I think a lot of times when you don't play to win, they're like, well, we could have got a fifth or a sixth game out of this weekend. What were you thinking? And and you're like, well, I'm sorry I didn't give you that those extra seven innings. I was – trying to develop your son for when he's 19 and 20 i'm sorry yeah and you know, your, so your that, kid was at the
0: ballpark from 6 30 in the morning and it's five and he's played yes. four games and his arm's about to fall off
1: yeah and those are conversations that if you get out ahead of it you can usually nip it in the bud but in the moment mom and dad want to know why they didn't get their money's worth and and coach is like yeah but we're better. We're better because of it. So just relax. Yeah.
0: I I told, that was one of the biggest reasons that I just, like I was saying, when I had the teams too, I I couldn't handle it because I would tell them you go play five baseball games in a day. Like, let's see how that goes. Like, I guarantee you, you're going to fall over. Get in the box. Yeah. 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 It's not, it's not that easy. Your, your 12 year old kid is probably going to be massively sore and maybe even, you know, create some kind of tightness that could affect him in the following weekend. And that stuff frustrates, you know, all of us when it comes to that, when the, the knowledge of the people that haven't played at that level is just not accepted, you know, when, and that's the biggest thing that I see with parents and too is, is, and we have clients all the time that we run into this where they're like, Hey, he's not throwing strikes right now. I'm like, what's well, it's okay. Like, it's okay. He's like, nine. He's, yeah, he's nine, he's 12, <laughs> he's 17. Like something is off like that, that, that means you are right for communicating with that. But the panic that you are showing your kid will reflect that same panic, unless he's mature enough to be like, I don't know why my dad's freaking out right now. I just, <laughs> I know what I did wrong. Um, I was a little earlier, I was a little late or, you know, and most of the time it comes into an external factor. That's not even them. It's like, Oh, well we we threw on a, uh, a temporary mound and my front foot was slipping. And then they come up with the old football excuse. Well, you gotta be able to adjust to anything. And I'm like, no, you don't. No, because if you shorten your stride and your timing feels off, you're not gonna feel comfortable on the mound. So you're not gonna be able to perform to the level that you do. And then then we get the same thing. Well, how come they just can't do what they do at the facility in the game? Once again, he's not as comfortable. It's 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 a comfort thing. If you can be relaxed and comfortable, you can think a little clearer and execute what you're trying
2: to do more. Okay. I have, um, I want to be respectful of your time. We're, we're over an hour right now. Um, I, I have, I, I want to ask a couple questions or at least go in the direction of you being a teacher because I, I, I've seen a lot of the things that you've been saying from that standpoint. Um, do you know what's going on? No. Kyle, can you this? <laughs> I'm sorry?
0: Yeah, we lost video on you. I don't know if you can see how do it. I?
1: Yeah, how do I fix that? What do I do?
0: Uh, uh, did someone call you or anything? Yes uh maybe go back into the app it might i mean you didn't lose the app, so hmm i'm not sure well we're wrapping up anyway Just yeah. kind of, you know. okay
2: so i want more i want more context of where you're coming from from a teaching standpoint in a classroom because i know that you talk about that a lot and i think that there will be I, I obviously there are parallels there i i have really re- recognized personally um in the last couple months that I just have this huge responsibility as a teacher, and not just as a baseball coach. And I think that I would like to learn some of the ideas that you're talking about. So I don't know how deep you want to go, or what the problems are with education, but wherever you'd like to start, tell me more.
1: Uh, well, so in, in the in the how the River Cats won, I I refer to as a survival system and what i mean by that is when you enter something with a target to hit and not everyone gets to have the prize eventually things get really tough at the end because you know not everyone can be a champion, and there is one team that survives so anytime that you set a target like that and and you can't you can't all win the prize that creates a survival system. My biggest issue with education is it takes on competition rules. Education becomes a survival system. And when, you know, everyone can learn, but not everyone can win. And yet we, we create all of these constraints in, our, in the lives of our kids. We, we create, we form silos, we create artificial finish lines. Uh, we 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 recognize the people that that finish tests first and finish them more correctly as the winners to the game, and it just creates a survival system where not everyone has an opportunity to achieve. And I think that's wrong. I, I think in general that's wrong. And and maybe maybe the the big pressing concern with respect to that is when your athletes show up in uniform, they chose to put that uniform on when your students show up in your presence, they did not choose to show up in your presence. They're often assigned my class because they need a certain credit to graduate. And then that relationship is strained right from the beginning. They're there without choice. And in the book, I talk about the three doors at which we enter and uh, in the the first one is the actual door you got to show up the second one is the attentional door you got to give someone their uh, your eyes but the third one is always the hardest door that's the intentional door that's that you got to give someone your ears and our players generally listen to us and and that that is where athletics will always trump academics until until they're allowed to choose their classes Because these students are showing up in my presence, but they're not giving me their ears and they're 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 truthfully not really interested in learning. They're only really interested in getting the grade that's assigned to them for that class. So when you start to narrow it down, that that, that's the root of my frustrations, I suppose. And and I, I propose some some solutions, I mean. I, I, uh, I'm a teacher. I'm not a principal. I'm not a superintendent. Uh, I, but what, what I do see on a daily basis, and I don't think I'm misreading this. I think it's accurate. I think we have, we have a lot of frustrated students in our buildings and, and, um, you know, pain is the greatest teacher. And I, 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 I'm, I tend to be an empathetic guy, so it bothers me. So I want to affect change. Yeah, because I
2: recently I heard you say something along the lines that you you convinced somebody that they had the the right answer when they didn't, and what kind of effect that had on that situation? Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah, I think us us uh, adults, coaches, teachers, we feel like I use the phrase wrong spotting. I we we feel like we need to spot every single wrong and correct it immediately because that's most beneficial. But what I've found is when someone makes a mistake, sometimes when you allow that mistake to sit without recognizing it, they start to enjoy the process a little bit more. And granted, they're still not doing it exactly correct, but eventually you develop trust with that person and over time they're more receptive to hearing it when you do share it so in the book I talk about the, the the truth versus trust and and that's a real big component for coaches is knowing when to share the truth and when to when to lean on trust
2: dang I just thought of things that
1: are a little too personal right now but
2: that that's really fantastic. Um, uh, anything else is from your book standpoint that you want to touch on? Can you share like how people can find it? Is there an, is there a, an audio version of it? Tell tell us as much as you can about
1: your plug the crap out of it. Well, it's funny you say that because the um, we live in a world where the information that we want has to be given to us so quickly, and and the audio is so compelling because. We can listen to it to and from our practices and wherever we're going. I don't have an audio, and uh, I've looked into it. it um, eventually, it may come to that. But uh, Amazon is is where you can buy the book, Amazon.com, and um, and I, I I wish that we could communicate all our all our information via 280 characters over Twitter. I think. That would be a wonderful way to to educate and to to, to be productive with our time. But you know that the the truth of the matter is, the people that sit down to write books spend a lot of time deciding what gets filtered and what shows up. And you can't do you can't do justice to information in two hundred eighty characters. So that's why I sat down to write the book. And um, right now, that's 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 the one. You know that you can get it on Kindle, but but I'm not going to do an audio yet. I'm going to continue to throw things out via Twitter, but it'll only be a fraction of what's in the book. And and I had a ton of fun doing the book. I mean, I, I wrote that thing quickly. I, I I saw it before I wrote it is what I tell people. I, I saw it in my my mind. And then I and then I got after. it. Do you have an Instagram? Yeah. R cats coach at our cat. The,
2: the letter R cats coach. Oh yeah, I've shared that with tons of people. So, John, do you have anything else? Man, this has been this
0: has been phenomenal. I really appreciate you uh, carving a you know a little time out of your day and, and coming out and sharing the ideas and the concepts and stuff. And I think that these conversations that we are having are going to massively change the game that we know. Cause as all three of us know, we know the level of the game that we love, that we cherish that we want to share with people and maybe that's probably why i I know that i get frustrated sometimes when i don't feel like people give it a chance to get to that level of the game because you know i've had fun i've had fun as well i've had fun at the lowest level i've had fun at the highest level and you know it's um it's fun like that's the greatest way to explain it. You know,
2: there's just so many life lessons that we, we all know that we can take from it and just people aren't allowing that to happen. And that can be really frustrating. And the conversations that we, we get to have with people like you, Kyle are just really, really, I'm just, I feel very fortunate to be able to be in this position and hopefully share this with other people. So I mean this, I I, I hope you will let me continue to reach out to you because I, I really appreciate all that you do um and all that you say and that you're sharing these, you're sharing your experiences uh with other people and I think I, I I don't know if I said this yet on this but I said this to John you are one of the biggest reasons why I think it's so important to educate i'm I, I'm completely willing to tell people anything if they're willing to listen um because i i don't I don't want to hold on to it um I think this is much bigger than than people realize. I think baseball has systemically removed the ability for people to educate to be educated by Major League Baseball, and and maybe that's maybe that's aggressive for me to say, but it just feels like it was way too hard for me to get where I am today. Um, from a knowledge standpoint, it seems like it should be easier to to know what's going on at the highest levels. And you are one of the people that have allowed me to get to where I am today. So I, I appreciate you very much for, for being an educator. So that's all. Well, I thank, have you. On that, man.
1: Yeah, thank you.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's been yeah, a long time. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. I was looking forward to it. Thank you for your time.
0: Sounds good guys. Don't all forget right. to go follow. Uh, Kyle uh, Go ahead and plug your Twitter, all your, your easy ones for you to find everybody.
1: Uh, Twitter is at go wags, Kyle. Uh, and then uh, Instagram is our cats coach awesome
0: awesome we'll we'll pass along that on to everybody and keep moving on i really appreciate it got anything else no all right don't forget to go check him out subscribe to our youtube channels we'll talk to kyle a little bit more about you know trying to do some more stuff in the future um really appreciate it man and uh thank you have a good day you know stay stay dry over there
1: in in the east coast yeah very good take care see you all All right right. Bye. bye